Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. So glad you found us. We want to share that during the week of Thanksgiving, area churches are joining together for a Godsfield week of thanks. We'll be hosting here on Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. a Thanksgiving Eve service. It'll be a great opportunity for us to join together with churches from around our community as we lean into just showing our gratitude and our thankfulness for all that God's given us. So you want to mark your calendar and plan on joining us at 6.30 p.m. on the 24th. Let's lean into our final week together on this study of revival stronger than ever as we've looked at Ezra and his writings in First and Second Chronicles. And as we begin, simply pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, speak to me. Amen. So over the last number of weeks, our, our text has been the book of Chronicles, first and second, and we've looked to this ancient prophet, Ezra, to help us better understand. He was a scribe and he was anointed, and he's helping us understand through the lessons on how a nation and a people can emerge from a national crisis. And I think we've learned a lot, haven't we? As we began this study six weeks ago, we began a journey together, and it was a journey of becoming righteous and a people who were resilient and a people who remained strong in the midst of adversity. And as we've looked at the nation of Israel, to become a people who are hope-filled in the midst of a time of scarcity. And then finally, to be a people who are determined in the face of demonic opposition. That was what we looked at last week. And it's interesting that Ezra used a really powerful technique by just helping us look at uh, things by telling us the stories of Israel's revivals. Now, as we've said, as we've been in this study, the book of Second Chronicles in particular has been called the Book of Revivals because from chapter 15 through chapter 35, Ezra records five revivals that each transformed the people of God and brought them back to God. We have already walked through a number of these together, but let me give you the full list just as a point of review. The first revival took place under King Asa. And remember, God let Asa know that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to strongly support those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So we see here that revival takes commitment. And then the second revival took place under King Jehoshaphat. Remember, he was the one who humbly admitted, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. And so that reminded us that revival requires prayer. The third revival took place under King Joash, and he was the one who reinstituted the tithe and he rebuilt the temple. And that helped us to be reminded that a revival requires a place, if you will. The fourth revival took place under Hezekiah, when he discovered that God required the Jews to hold a feast called Passover every April. And so the people gathered for the feast and revival broke out. So revival requires God's people to gather regularly for worship. As the people gathered, they realized that they hadn't been serving the Lord faithfully, and so they confessed and they repented. And so finally, revival requires repentance. And so here again, the, the list of what revival brings. It, it, it's about commitment, it's about prayer, it's about a place, it's about corporate worship, and it's also about repentance. One of the questions I get on a regular basis is, why is it that God seems to be so harsh in the Old Testament? Why is it that he, did he punish people by allowing foreign armies, for example, to overtake them? Let's take a look at one particular story here in chapter 33, where the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, did what was evil in the Lord's sight 
imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down and reestablished the altars for the Baals. He made Asherah poles and he bowed in worship to the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem was where my name will remain forever. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He passed his sons to the fire in the Ben-Hinnom Valley. He practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. Passing your children through the fire was a way of worshiping the God of the underworld. The child was passed through the fire as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. And if the child died, it meant your sacrifice was accepted. No wonder God was angry with these people. He goes on to say that Manasseh caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. King Manasseh reigned for 55 years. His son was Ammon, who succeeded him for two years. Ammon was so wicked, the scriptures say, that the people assassinated him. And then Ammon was succeeded by his son, Josiah. Now, I said earlier that Israel experienced five revivals, and it was this fifth revival happens during Josiah's reign. It's the story we're going to look at today. So take a look here at 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And I pray that as we begin, you open your heart by asking the Lord to speak to you as we read this. Context is everything, and so let me just set it up this way first. At the time that Josiah comes to power, the kingdom is at all time low. God, Yahweh, is forsaken. Baal is what is being worshipped. Richcraft is something that is common and practiced. Mediums are consulted. And it seems as though all that is right is forsaken, and all that is wrong is exalted. Now, what does God do in these kinds of circumstances? Well, he sends revival. And so listen to this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, and he walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, when he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. And in the twelfth year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles and the carved images and the cast images. And then in his presence, the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles the carved images and the cast images. He crushed them to dust and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, so he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So basically, he cleaned out the countryside of idolatry and child sacrifice. And then here what happens. In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, the governor of the city and the court historian, and Joah, son of Joaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. And this is when things get real exciting. The next few verses here will describe how the king conducted a capital campaign of sorts all over the land, and that people donated generously to help refurbish the temple. And beginning here at verse 14, when they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest, Hilkiah, found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple, and he gave the book to Shaphan. So in other words, he, he found the Bible. It had been lost all these years. 
Now we skip to verse 18 where it says, The court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, The priest Hakiah gave me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Now can you imagine this moment? Josiah had never read the Bible. Maybe he had never even heard of it. His secretary starts reading it to him, and the text says, When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, tearing clothes, that's a sign of repentance. He tore his clothes and he said, For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord. And then over the next several verses, God sends the king a word from a prophetess named Huldah, and she says, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place, and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. God loves to make promises to people who are faithful to him. So Josiah is fully committed to the Lord. So he does what every fully devoted follower does. He tells others about his great God. He sends a message to everyone under his influence that they too should follow the Lord. So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from the oldest to the youngest. He read in their hearing and all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God. Why does Ezra tell us this story? He wants us to know what God does for his faithful followers. He also wants us to know the importance of reading and knowing scripture and he also wants us to know the potential that our children have for us. So if you're a teenager today, I hope Josiah would be your hero. I mean, this dude is 16 years old, and he made the most important decision of his life. The text says here, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. Now, we know that our students, as they live their teenage years, they can be really painful years, or they can be incredibly fruitful years. It all depends upon what you seek. And so as a 16-year-old, instead of seeking parties and pleasure, this young man, Josiah, he sought the Lord. And what came from that is he became one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. 26 years of age, Josiah had grown so much spiritually that he summoned the courage to spark a revival. Josiah took seven decisive steps to change the entire country. Let's walk through those quickly. Starting when he was 20 years old, what Josiah did was he cleansed the land of false worship. He halted the sins of his ancestors by tearing down the shrines to false gods that were in his land. The first commandment we know says, I am the Lord your God and we should have no other gods before him. So Josiah snuffed out the competition. It took him almost six years to do that, to clean it all up. And then once the land was cleansed, he came back to Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. You see, worship of God requires a place, whether it's a temple or a church or a parking lot even. God's people have always created places to worship because where two or more have gathered in his name, he is there in their midst. And so in the process of cleaning out the temple, he finds the book of the law. 
And this priest named Hilkiah found the sacred scrolls in the Holy of Holies. And when he read them to the king, Josiah tore his clothes and he wept in shame, which is the fourth thing he did. He not only read, he also repented of not following the book of the law. And he says basically, God, I didn't know, but now I do. And from now on, I'm going to abide by everything you've asked of me, which leads to his fifth step. He called on the people to obey the book of the law. He summons the whole city and he reads them the words of God. He and the people made a covenant to keep God's commands. And he boldly says, now that we've read it, let's agree to obey it. I have a piece of paper here and I'm going to sign my name to it. And then I'm going to ask all of you to sign your names to it too. And the people, they lined up and they signed it. I wonder what would happen today if I asked all of us to sign a covenant to read and follow the law of the Lord. Would you do it? Would you be in? Would you be willing to make a covenant with God to read and abide by his commands? If I put something like this, if you look in the message notes here, I've got something where you could sign if you wanted to. It says, my covenant with God. I will read God's word daily and I will live it out faithfully. A place to put your name and a place to put the date. You could even take right here in the chat. You could put right here in the chat, I'm in, and, and make that same kind of commitment. Would you be willing to do that? Uh, would you be willing to follow through and obey of what that requires? For weeks now, I've been praying that God would send us a revival. Revival started for the people of Josiah's day by signing a covenant just like this one. If we all signed our names, might that start a revival here? And so the seventh step Josiah takes is he celebrated Israel's greatest Passover, it says. And we don't have to read all of chapter 35, but just look at verse None of the kings of Israel ever observed a Passover like the one Josiah observed with the priests, the Levites, all Judah, the Israelites who were present in Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is the story of a young king and of what a revival looks like. God promised to Josiah, if you live by my word, I will take care of you. And it's that taking care of you that I think I want us to really wrap our mind around and be reminded. Again, listen to this verse. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. It's interesting that some 600 years later, Jesus stood on a hillside and he proclaimed boldly, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, Jesus says, will be provided for you. Now, what's interesting here when we look at the story of Josiah, a few generations after him, judgment did come on the nation of Judah. But by then, Josiah and his revival generation had passed on. They were spared because they had sought the Lord in his kingdom and his righteousness. Ezra wants us to learn some lessons from this story. Lessons that I think can help us rebuild our lives and rebuild our church and rebuild our community, even rebuild our nation. They're here in the worship notes, but let me just unpack them here. The first lesson was that reading scripture changes your life. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If you will read scripture, it will read you. And it will elevate you. It will change you. It will make you think more like God thinks. You, so you will see more like God sees and act more like God acts. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind happens when you read scripture. Or Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the moments you spend in scripture may be the most important moments of your day. Thanks to your generosity, we've got this book that we're going to be giving all of our students today in the building. It's a book that's the one-minute Bible. It's got one page with a scripture for the day and a place for them to read uh, somebody's thoughts and then even a place for them to journal their own thoughts as a way just to encourage them to be in God's word. One of the tools we use here on a daily basis is the Bible app or version. And what's incredible about that is that they're ticking close to almost 500 million downloads since they started. That's just incredible. The impact that they've had even in our own story here where there's a link above here in the worship notes that you can follow the Bible outline that we've just gone through for today's message. There's also Bible plans that you can share and be a part of. In fact, I would encourage you over the week ahead, we're going to begin tomorrow morning. If you aren't already using the YouVersion app, please subscribe to it and join us as we lean into a week of studying about the impact of the Bible being alive and celebrating with our friends at YouVersion this incredible tool that connects all of us. And if you've not used it yet, please do because it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can grow in your faith journey, but you can also learn much about what God has to say to you through his written word. I don't even know where to begin. This is how the word of God changed my life. I was struggling to find my way through life and my identity. I thought that God had forgotten about me. Sitting on a rack uh, in Fresno County Jail, I uh, decided to pick up a Bible. For me, it happened on the fourth floor of a psychiatric hospital. I was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I woke up, I mean, literally paralyzed by fear. But I clung onto my Bible. I needed hope, I needed comfort, I needed rescuing. That's when I discovered the YouVersion Bible app. I started actively reading the Bible in 2012 when it became more portable. And little by little, my mind began to change. It spoke to me. It showed me who I was and who I could be. God was changing me. It's completely changed my life, broke those chains of addiction. I have been cut by God's word, and it is sharp. I tell you, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I've never thought the same again. My mind was completely healed. I know that God is love, and He doesn't disappoint those of us who take refuge in Him. My whole goals have changed, my motives. Because it shows me who He is, who I am, and all I have in Christ. There is no substitute for learning God's Word. It's that same living Word of life that ministers directly to us in whatever circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. The Bible helps me to get to know Jesus. So just because of the life-transforming factor of the Bible, I do know that it is real and it's alive. The Word of God does not fail. Jehovah Rapha is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've met God, I've fallen in love with the Bible, and there's really no going back for me. So again, the moments that you spend in Scripture may be the most important moments of your day. Ezra, in his own book, describes it this way. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, he says, The good hand of God was upon him because he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. See, even Ezra wants you to know that Scripture is vital to your life. 
And Ezra wants you to know that it's good to make a covenant with the Lord too. The people signed their names, the scripture says, basically I'm in or I'm committed. I will be a scripture reader and I will be a scripture doer. Ezra wants us to know that not only does reading scripture change a life, but also reading scripture changes nations. So many of us believe that we don't have time to read the Bible because we're just too busy trying to be successful and prosperous. But here's what God's promise is, that if you read and apply my book, I will make you into a prosperous and a successful person. And I wonder, is this promise just for individuals or does it work for groups too? I'm going to suggest it works for all of us. Here's a little research I did into what happens when a group or a nation decides to dedicate itself to reading scripture. In 1700, the people of England were poor people. If you read any of Charles Dickens's good works, you know that there were workhouses and there were debtors' prisons everywhere. The streets of London were dark and it was filled with pollution and it was just filthy and there was lots of disease. And then in 1738, a guy by the name of Jonathan Wesley gave his life to Christ and began forming Bible studies all over the country. And then by 1798, there were 100,000 Bible study groups meeting all over England. As a result, throughout the 1800s, England was the most prosperous nation on earth. In 1800, a young man named Hans Hogg gave his life to the Lord, and he started creating Bible study groups in Norway to read scripture. At that time, Norway was ruled over by Denmark. Within two decades, the Norwegians overthrew their Danish overlords, and then by 1900, Norway was one of the most prosperous nations in the world, and it remains so to this very day. And then in 1857, the United States was an economic loser compared to the nations of Europe. But in that year, a revival broke out in the old Dutch church in New York, and people started reading their Bibles. In the 1880s, as frontier families moved west, they brought their Bibles with them, and every evening after supper, the father of the family would read the Bible out loud by candlelight. And then by 1920, the United States had become the most prosperous nation on earth. So what's the point of all this? There's a lot of concern these days about income inequality, but time and time again, if we look at the Bible, it's proven to be the greatest equalizer on earth. People who study it, who read it, they will prosper. It's the book that changes everything. It changes lives. It's the book that even changes nations. As we sort of wrap up this series and we look at these final words from Ezra, my challenge to you is to let God's word change you, my friend. God wants to meet you in these pages every day, whether it's online, through a Bible app, or, or it's literally a, on a printed page. He has things he wants to say to you. He has a perspective he wants to offer you and to show you. He wants to guide you in your life steps. At one time, this book was mothballed in the temple as we read today. My encouragement is don't mothball yours at home. Get it out. Read it and let it in. Let its words sink into who you are and help shape you in your daily journey. And then share it with your friends. Be a Josiah. Spark a revival. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray.